0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by Discovery.
1: Welcome to Inside COVID 19. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. Around 65% of people with coronavirus lose their sense of smell and taste, and it's estimated that about 10% of those go on to develop rare conditions that create havoc. Perosmia means you can find human waste smells like food, and vice versa. So what causes parosmia? We spoke to Reading University flavour scientist Dr Jane Parker, who is undertaking in-depth research on long COVID and parosmia. Also coming up in this program, the long-term effects of COVID-19 on the travel and tourism industries, with warnings that life may only return to normal in seven years at today's vaccine rates. We hear from Christopher Nasetta, President and CEO of Hilton Hotels, about the outlook for the hotel industry in 2021. First, the COVID-19 headlines.
0: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
1: More than 104.9 million people are now reported as having tested positive for COVID-19 around the globe. About 2.3 million people have died of the disease. More than 119 million vaccine shots have been given worldwide. In South Africa, just under 45,500 people are reported as having died of COVID-19, while there have been 1.5 million positive tests reported by the government. When will life return to normal? In seven years at today's vaccine rates, says Bloomberg, The news organisation has built the biggest database of COVID-19 shots given around the world. US science officials such as Anthony Fauci have suggested it will take 70% to 85% coverage of the population for things to return to normal. Bloomberg's vaccine tracker shows that some countries are making far more rapid progress than others, using 75% coverage with a two-dose vaccine as a target. Israel is the country with the highest vaccination rate in the world, and it is headed for 75% coverage in just two months. The US, says Bloomberg, will get there just in time to ring in the 2022 new year. However, this pace is likely to accelerate further as more vaccines become available. Some of the world's biggest vaccine manufacturing hubs in India and Mexico are only just getting started. A new vaccine by Johnson & Johnson recently showed positive results using a single dose in a large clinical trial. If approved, there will be an adjustment to the number of doses required proportionate to its market share in each country. Russian vaccine developers are in discussions with China's CanSino Biologics to test a combination of their shots aimed at a better result. Italy is planning to begin its vaccination campaign for people under 55 on Tuesday. The first doses from AstraZeneca are due to arrive at the weekend. Poland will reopen hotels, cinemas, theatres and operas at up to 50% capacity for a two-week trial period starting on February the 12th. The reopening will include outdoor sport facilities such as ski slopes and tennis courts, but restaurants and fitness clubs will remain closed. Using patient data, artificial intelligence can make a 90% accurate assessment of whether a person will die from COVID-19 or not. That's according to new research at the University of Copenhagen. Body mass index, gender and high blood pressure are among the most heavily weighted factors. The research can be used to predict the number of patients in hospitals who will need a respirator and determine who ought to be first in line for a vaccination. China quelled the coronavirus by deploying its authoritarian system to get things done. But seven weeks into China's vaccination campaign, the picture is surprisingly underwhelming. The more than 31.2 million doses administered since its official start on December the 15th have put it second only to the US with its nearly 35 million shots. Yet for a population of 1.4 billion, China has delivered little more than two doses for every 100 people. Compare this to three in the European Union, 10 in the US, and nearly 60 in Israel. French authorities say it's not possible to ease COVID-19 restrictions yet, but the situation doesn't justify imposing a fresh lockdown. Meanwhile, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has said in an interview that it's still too soon to ease the lockdown in Europe's largest economy. This is even as the pandemic shows signs of ebbing. Until vaccines are widely available, weekly COVID-19 testing plus a two-week isolation period for positive cases may be the most cost-effective strategy to tackle the spread of the virus in the US. This is according to a study in The Lancet. Ursula von der Leyen says she underestimated the complications that can arise in the production of coronavirus vaccines. This is according to the Deutsche Zeitung, which cites an interview with the European Commission president, saying, We focused very much on the development of a vaccine. In retrospect, we should have thought more about the challenges of mass production in parallel. The Philippines will make it mandatory to wear masks inside all vehicles, even for passengers from the same household. A UK variant of COVID-19 has been found in Melbourne before the Australian Open. More than 500 members of the Australian Open tennis cohort received negative COVID-19 test results on Friday after a quarantine hotel worker contracted the virus. Host City Melbourne had all but eliminated the virus until a local case of the B one one seven variant was detected in a worker at a hotel where players quarantined. India is set to receive the largest number of COVID-19 vaccine doses, 97.2 million shots, in the first tranche of the distribution from the World Health Organization's COVAX initiative. This is despite the fact that the supply in the country is outstripping demand. The COVAX initiative aimed at creating equitable global access to COVID vaccines, especially for developing countries, is planning to distribute about 338 million doses at the end of this month. The large allocation to India is likely to raise eyebrows, given that the country currently seems to have plenty of shots, but few takers. Only around half of those eligible to get vaccination in its inoculation drive have come forward, and local media reports say that India producer Serum Institute of India is sitting on over 55 million doses and has temporarily halted production. The UK will require travellers from coronavirus hotspots to quarantine starting on February the 15th. Arrivals from countries on the UK's travel ban list, which include countries in southern Africa, will be required to isolate for 10 days in government-approved accommodation. China donated 200,000 doses of coronavirus vaccines to Zimbabwe, which will help kick the government's rollout of inoculations, according to President Emerson Mangagwa. COVID-19 vaccines, which have been scientifically ascertained to be safe, will soon be introduced, he said in a televised address. He promised that these will be state-funded and free.
0: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
1: Many people with COVID-19 temporarily lose their sense of smell. As they recover, it usually returns, but some are finding that things smell different and things that should smell nice, such as food, soap, and their loved ones smell repulsive. The numbers with this condition, known as parosmia, are constantly growing. Scientists are not sure why it happens or how to cure it. A Facebook group set up by the smell loss charity Absent has already got more than 6,000 members. Nearly all of these people started with anosmia arising from COVID-19 and ended up with parosmia. We spoke to Reading University flavor scientist Dr. Jane Parker, who is undertaking in-depth research on COVID-19 and parosmia. Dr Parker, what do scientists know so far about the link between COVID-19 and the loss of smell? Loss
2: of sense of smell post-viral, that is after viral infections, were known before COVID arrived on the scene. So it's quite well known that loss of sense of smell can be triggered by certain infections such as sinus infection, flu and the common cold and there are people who lost their sense of smell years ago as a result of one of these viruses. The fact that it's uh, it's associated with COVID-19 is not with hindsight surprising but it it was a long time before scientists realised what the link was and I think Initially, when the cases were in um, China and Iran, people were reporting headaches, fevers, um, etc. And there were very few reporting loss of sense of smell. But I became aware of it when an ENT doctor put up a tweet or something on social media that says, you know, I've seen more and more people losing their sense of smell and I've been diagnosed with COVID and I've got lost my sense of smell. So I know that this is real. And from that point, really, we started looking at or many, many people around the world started looking at how close this link was. Initially, it was anecdotal, but we gathered more and more evidence to suggest that more and more people were losing their sense of smell with COVID. And the important thing is that it's a sudden onset of loss of sense of smell. So it happens instantaneously. It's not a slow decline. It's a sort of one day breakfast, you're fine, and lunchtime, you've lost your sense of smell. It's instant. And then... We've gathered a lot of data. Various groups have shown that somewhere between 50 and 60% of people uh, lose their sense of smell with COVID. So it's certainly one of the uh, key symptoms.
1: That's quite a lot of people, 50 to 60%. That sounds like one of the major symptoms.
2: It's huge. And when you think of the number of people around the world with COVID, it does come out to millions of people losing their sense of smell. It's an important symptom and it's an important ongoing symptom. What we know is that about 90% of those people will probably get their sense of smell back. And I know that from my son who lost his sense of smell 10 days later. It was back and it comes back almost as quickly as you lose it. But it's those 10 to 20% for whom it doesn't come back quickly that there's a severe long-term problem and some of the some of the early problems with recovery is that you develop parosmia, and parosmia is when your sense of smell becomes altered um, and disgusting. So things that are familiar, everyday smells, smell of sewage or smoke or rotting, rotting sewage, or you know all sorts of really quite nasty aromas. Nobody can quite tell you what it is they smell like because, from what we can gather, people with parosmia can't describe these aromas because they are so different to anything that they've smelled before so most people describe them as disgusting awful revolting um, and use words that um, describe the emotion attached to them rather than what they actually smell of so um, and this happens typically three months into two to three months after the onset of anosmia now anosmia is what we call loss of smell. Uh, and it's usually a good sign in that it does indicate that things are starting to get better and your sense of smell is recovering. But it's not good news in the fact that it is quite more debilitating it is more debilitating than simply losing your sense of smell. Losing your sense of smell is um worrying in itself because you can't smell smoke, you can't smell danger, you can't smell gas you can't smell your loved ones and it's frustrating and obviously your food doesn't have any uh much flavor you can still taste some things so you can still taste sweet salty sour bitter sweet salty sour and bitter but it has no um character because there's nothing telling you um whether you've got a pear or a, an apple you you really can't disting, distinguish foods and you no longer enjoy food when you've got parosmia it's it's worse than that it's one step worse because the food that you do eat smells revolting Um, and one of the key triggers is coffee Um, many people describe coffee as um, vomity sickly sweet um, smoky chemical Um, and for some people they can go into a room and smell The coffee at the other end of the room they can walk past a coffee shop and in some cases it can be quite severe in some cases people really get the urge to to be sick it's nauseating smell you know they have to leave the room as quickly as possible so it is really debilitating for some people who and imagine if you can't be in the same room as cooking smells going to restaurants eating out all these sort of things become difficult and Many people get quite antisocial, eat on their own, eat what they can. There's a um, two-way relationship really between olfaction and loss of olfaction or loss of your sense of smell and depression. Um, We know that if you're um, clinically depressed, you're prone to losing your sense of smell. um, Or not losing it, but prone to a decrease in your ability to smell. And the reverse is true, that if you've lost your sense of smell you are prone to depression so for the people with parosmia you know it's a it's a lot worse and we've had people sending us emails saying you know i'd far rather have had anosmia An osmia Nosmia was bad but this is even worse i want to go back to smelling nothing at all and then i suppose if we go on to the recovery for many people it's really bad in the first few days weeks months but it does tail off a bit And people do get used to it to a certain extent. Sometimes different things become rather nasty and disgusting. So perhaps to begin with coffee and chocolate and peanuts were horrible. But I've heard people saying, well, they're better now. But other things like shower gel are um, the things that sort of set off my parosmia. But within these fluctuations, things do start to get better. But this takes time. From what we know pre-COVID it can take three four years before you get back to enjoying food with post-COVID we don't know how long it takes because obviously people are only just sort of reporting it there's a three-month lag anyway from cases and it is a long-term recovery process but what's encouraging is the fact that we have had people emailing us saying you know I did have this I didn't know what it was at the time nobody believed me Uh, And it is better now. Thankfully, I can, I'm back to normal. I can enjoy food. And so that's within a year. So that's good news that some people are recovering more quickly. We haven't studied people over the years. So it's something we don't know uh, how long recovery will take on average from the post COVID version.
1: We hear a lot about comorbidities and having a higher risk of having really bad symptoms from COVID 19. Is there any evidence to suggest that some people might be more? prone to getting parosmia and other loss of smell related issues connected to COVID-19?
2: I don't think we know enough about that. I don't think we can answer that. We do know that younger people tend to be more affected by the smell loss. And to begin with, we thought that was possibly just because the people that were more seriously affected didn't bother reporting it. You know, if you're in hospital and hooked up to all sorts of things you you don't notice whether you can taste or not but I think subsequently it has been shown that certainly younger people are more prone to losing their sense of smell and certainly from some of the research I've done the people that are coming through on average into my um, lab for my study are younger post-covid than the group that came through before COVID. So before COVID, the average age of people losing their sense of smell, developing parosmia, and coming to my study, was about 55. Whereas with the post-COVID people, the average age is 37. So it does seem to be younger people
1: that are losing their sense of smell. You said that it's hard to cure this. Are there any treatments to stop the symptoms from developing?
2: People have tried all sorts of things. But what we tend to recommend is time. (laughs) because it does take a long time so time patience and support because um, you really need to prevent yourself spiraling down into sort of clinical depression so it's really important that you have good support people that understand you and understand what you're going through and the third thing is the smell training where you actually smell essential oils mindfully so you have to sit and sniff them twice a day Thinking about what they smell like, what they are, what they should smell like. You may not smell them initially, but that doesn't matter. You smell them twice a day for three three months at least, and that does help. It has been shown to improve the olfactory function of people that have done smell training compared to those that didn't do it. So that, that's
1: one very positive thing you can do. Do scientists have information yet about why COVID might be causing this? What is the sort of the reaction or the the chemical activity that happens in the body that is causing this?
2: There's the two scenarios. There's the short-term scenario where you lose your sense of smell and it comes back after 10 days. And we believe that that's to do with the virus infecting the olfactory epithelium. So that's the the bit at the top of your nose where you um, actually sense all these aromas, where there are neurons that respond to the smells and take the signal up to the brain. And what happens is that the um, virus attacks the cells in that epithelium, and what they found interestingly is that it doesn 't actually attack this the olfactory neurons, so it no, doesn 't attack the nerves that are going to transmit the signal, but what it may do is attack the surrounding cells these become inflamed they may sort of, you can imagine they kind of may squash the neurons, they may get in the way, and then the nerves are temporarily out of action. But as soon as the inflammation goes down, perhaps two weeks later, the neurons are still there, so you can still smell because they just need to fire up again. And the fact that it comes back so quickly suggests that there's a sort of on-off switch. So once your inflammation's gone, you can smell again because your neurons are there and still healthy. But what happens in the longer-term cases is we believe that The inflammation of the other cells, the support cells, is so bad that you end up, there's a sort of knock-on effect and a sort of spillage, if you like, into the olfactory neurons. So they are destroyed as well. And we've got pretty good evidence that the olfactory sensory neurons are destroyed. And what happens, these need to regrow and regrowing neurons takes quite a long time. But these need to regrow for you to be able to start smelling things again. And the reason that we think you get the um, parosmia and the bad smells is because when they actually start to regrow, they don't actually attach back onto the same place once they get through the skull and into the olfactory bulb, into the brain. Um, they don't attach onto the same place as they were before, which just sends very mixed messages to our brain that says, I don't know what this smell is. And that might be something to do with why we perceive these smells as disgusting.
1: I see that some people describe anosmia as a rare side effect of coronavirus, but from what I'm hearing from you, it's not actually that rare. It could be more common than no. you realise. No, it's
2: not, and I think people have underestimated how severe it might get. With 50 to 60 percent of people losing um, their sense of smell, and 10 um, percent of those having long-term, 10 to 20 percent of those having long-term problems. Um, So already you've got 20% that have lost their sense of smell. Uh, And then the parosmia. I reckon maybe 50% of those. I don't think we've got a number on those at the moment um, because we're still waiting for people to develop parosmia. It can develop six months further down the line. So I don't think we've got hard and fast data for that. But um, certainly most people in order to recover have to go through this parosmic stage once they're beyond the initial two weeks. So, or I won't say two weeks because it, it, some people take the short term people, the average is two weeks, but you know, some might get, might have lost their sense of smell for a month or so. But once you get beyond that into the long term problem, it's, um, yeah, 12% of cases or something is what's been estimated. And prosmia maybe half of those
1: and before we close off here perhaps you could just sketch out what's next in research in this field and where your research is going
2: so we've been looking at the mechanism and the the way i've come into this as a flavor chemist is is unusual in that i spend my time every day looking at what aroma compounds um, are responsible for the smell in strawberries the smell in sweet potato fries the smell in basil whatever and The research I'm doing was sparked because I heard a talk at a conference by Chrissy Kelly of Absent and she had a list of all these foods that triggered porosmia and as a flavour chemist I looked at these and thought these all contain some really potent aroma compounds and because that's what I'm good at, I'm good at looking for aroma compounds, it was a natural progression and we started having people through our lab and we could pick the foods to bits, separate out all the aroma compounds and we could work out which compounds these people were finding revolting and repulsive. And it turned out that in in coffee, for example, about half of the compounds they found were normal. The other half were reported as disgusting and revolting. Now, this makes us, first of all, we now know that it is triggered by specific compounds. But what we need to know in the future is which receptors, which nerves are responsible. I think the research is going towards looking for um, what we call ligand odor receptor pairs. So, which are the receptors that are responsible for um, transmitting the signal from the individual aromas? We know it's only some aromas. So, we need to find out more about the odor receptors and what's going on in the epithelium. the the bit above the the nose where these odors are perceived why is it that some are distorted and some aren't why is it that some of them cause this real um change in uh, hedonic change and that it that aromas that are normally pleasant become disgusting so what is it that triggers that and that's more likely to be um cognitive that's more likely to be something to do with the central processing system so that's more neural um that's yeah that's more to do with the brain there's a group of people that find a lot of people that find coffee distorted and those people tend to find chocolate and peanut butter and fried and fried fries and cooked meat revolting and they're responding to a certain group of compounds there's another group that find onions and garlic Uh, revolting another completely different group that find household products and personal care products revolting and then water Uh, and that surprised us really there is a quite a big group of people who find they can't shower they can't bathe their babies because the smell of the water is just too intense and and revolting and that's the next step of our research is to looking into what the compounds in water are that might be triggering
1: this reaction.
0: Inside COVID 19, from Biz News.
1: As coronavirus vaccines started rolling out late last year, there was a palpable sense of excitement. People began browsing travel websites and airlines grew optimistic about flying again. Ryanair even launched a jab and go campaign alongside images of 20 somethings on holiday, drinks in hand. But it's not working out that way. For a start, it isn't clear the vaccines actually stop travelers spreading the disease, even if they're less likely to catch it themselves. Neither are the shots proven against the more infectious mutant strains. This bleak reality has pushed back expectations of any meaningful recovery in global travel to 2022. As Bloomberg reports, that may be too late to save the many airlines with only a few months of cash remaining. And the delay threatens to kill the careers of hundreds of thousands of pilots, flight crew and airport workers who have already been out of work for close to a year. In this interview, Christopher Nassetta, President and CEO of Hilton, speaks with Bloomberg QuickTech Chief Correspondent Jason Kelly about the outlook for the hotel industry in 2021.
3: We're going to kick it off right now with a guy who we all want to hear from. I certainly do. Chris Nassetta, the CEO of Hilton. Nice to see you, my friend. Uh, A different world. We're Nice to see you.
0: Yeah, nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Definitely a different world. Hopefully a world that's uh, on the road to improvement.
3: Well, I certainly hope so. And I know you do, too, for personal sake, for business sake. So let's get into the year ahead. What's the biggest surprise that we're going to see over the next six to 12 months?
0: I think the biggest surprise that we're going to see is the second half of the year is going to be a lot better than everybody thinks. I mean, if you think about sort of the cadence of how this has gone, um, and certainly our business, we've been on the front lines of this crisis. You know, Last April, May, June, we're, we're devastating in terms of declines in our business, mobility, you know, around the world was, went to almost nothing. And what we do requires mobility. So our, you know, our performance uh, was in keeping with that. And then as you, you got into the summer and into the early fall, things started to, you know, improve, uh, you know, pretty materially from, from where we were. And then as you got into the winter, as you had resurgence, both here in the U.S. and around the world, uh, things started to go backwards you know in the fourth quarter and and have sort of carried on into the first quarter and, it, and it's tough and, and then and i i'd suggest to you the next 60 or 90 days are going to be re- you know are going to be very difficult and there are parts of the world that had been doing well that are doing less well europe even asia pacific even china more recently we've seen it you know as you've seen cases increase you've seen the business drop off in china and so while I think we're in the middle of the, you know, sort of still in the eye of the storm to to a degree, the light um, the light is at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I'm an eternal optimist, so I chose the industry I'm in. But uh, to a degree, but but reality is, I think objectively, you could see you can see the steps in place. Um, we have um, a political cycle over with a new administration, an intense focus on getting us through the crisis in terms of what's going on with the rollout of vaccines. At the same time, you do have, uh, unfortunately, a lot of exposure. And so I think when you look at the data, and I'm not a health expert, but I talk to a lot of them, as you get into the you know early spring and certainly later spring, beginning of the summer, you, you should be at a place um, where, where you're not completely through this health crisis. I think it will take a long, long time, but you will be through the epicenter of it in a way where you can sensibly start to see things shift into a very, very different gear. And so, you know, what I've said to our team is like the first quarter is going to be really challenging. The second quarter, it's not going to feel great, but we're going to be transitioning. But I think there's a real opportunity for the third and fourth quarter when we get to to the other side of the health crisis to be a lot better than people think. Now, there are th- the things that need to happen. We need to have, you know, the va- the rollout of the vaccination go well, which, you know, I have confidence right. in the team that, that is leading that. Um, we have to have the political system support it. I mean, you have, you have a bunch of things, you know, going on. One is, of course, to get through the crisis. The two is, you know, legislatively making sure that we get the right um, bills in place to provide a bridge, a bridge for people who have been impacted, particularly frontline workers, that they get to the other side, liquidity for small business, that they have a bridge so that so, so that liquidity issues don't turn into solvency issues. Um, and, you know, that's sort of been done, but needs to continue to be enhanced.
3: And, and that's obviously being worked on. And then ultimately- So, Chris, you know, let me, if you don't mind, I, I want to take those two yes. in, in two yeah. pieces if we can. Let's talk about vaccines and what that rollout looks like from your perspective. Because as you've said, you have, you know, you have frontline workers in many ways. So how do you think about vaccines when it comes to your own employees and to your guests?
0: Yeah, listen, I I was first of all, I think that that things are starting to really pick up from. I mean, we're we're living in in an age where this is a miracle that these things that would have normally taken five or 10 years happened in less than a year. And the idea that we won't have a few bumps and bruises along the way in how we deal with supply chain to roll it out is sort of silly, right? We've never vaccinated the whole country and the whole world like this before. And so I think the administration's getting their act together. Leadership is great. And I think as a result, you're gonna see a huge amount of momentum here in the next 60 or 90 days, but it'll take, it'll take at least that long just in terms of manufacturing capacity ca- catching up. In terms of people getting vaccination, vaccinated, our team, myself, you know, I've, strong, I've already strongly encouraged everybody on our team, frontline and otherwise, when it's appropriate for them to get vaccinated. Uh, I would encourage all of our customers, I would encourage the country and the world um,
3: to get vaccinated so that we can get to the other side of this. But not requiring. Will you require it for, for your employees? How does that I work from a corporate perspective?
0: I, I don't think we'll require it. I think we are going to strongly encourage it, uh, as starting with me, when it is appropriate getting it, I will get it. I will make sure our team knows, and I will I will very strongly encourage all of our team members to get it, and I'll strongly encourage our customers to get it um, as well, just because I think right. ultimately getting to the other side of the crisis requires it.
3: You know, you've been vocal and transparent about what you think the, the government needs to do from that second bucket that you mentioned, which is legislatively, Economically stimulus wise, what needs to happen next? Especially since there does seem to be, dare I say, a little bit more momentum toward that. (laughs) Maybe yeah,
0: there is. Listen, I think, as I said, I think there are three pieces. One, we got to get through the crisis, or we don't. You know, we're never going to solve it. The second is is doing what they I think they are focused on, and my the bridge for me is taking care of people, particularly you know service level employees, frontline team members that can that, that are the most impacted can, can least afford to be impacted to make sure that, that there's continuation of unemployment insurance that has the top off from the federal government because it's going to be, listen, we're in the service industry, tremendous number of our team members and pe- folks across, millions of folks across our industry are still impacted and they're going to be impacted for an extended period of time. We have to take care of those folks. And then um we have to provide bridges of liquidity particularly for small and medium-sized businesses i look at our you know our base of owners it's almost it's eighty percent small businesses that own hotels all over the country and no fault of their own they've had a complete shutdown now a little bit of business but not enough to ultimately make payroll to make debt service to pay their taxes insurance and all those fun things that are required or you lose your asset if they lose their asset we're just that much longer to where they can get back on their feet and and reemploy people, so I think you have to if this is ultimately about getting to the other side so you get, people can get reemployed and you can get the economy jump started, you have to make sure that small and medium sized businesses are in a position to accept those um, those team members back when, when we get to right. the other side and and the thing that hasn't gotten any attention yet and for good reason, honestly, Jason, you know I said this to the last administration and and I've been talking to this one is. When you do get through the health side of it and, and hopefully providing the bridges of liquidity, which is what they're focused on with unemployment insurance continuation and in the package that's on the hill and PPP top up, they're, I think they're focused on the right things. Then we have to think about stimulus in the traditional way. I think about stimulus. How do, you get, how do you stimulate the economy, not bridge it, not take care of people out of work? How do you get people back to work? So there's specific things you know, in our industry, how do you get people that once they once we we think they can do it in a safe way? How do you provide incentives to get them traveling again, to go to restaurants again, to congregate again, again, safely? There'll be a new normal on how they do it. But once we get, you know, through vaccinate the vaccination process and we all feel comfortable that we can do it in a, in a safe way. You've got we've got to jumpstart the system, because here's the thing, like as much as everybody wants to get out you know this hasn't been a week or two or three this has been a year and it's going to have been a yeah. year plus and so you just get in new routines like you know you and i were talking about our new routines like we don't wear a suit and tie as much you know like everybody gets in these routines and you sort of like gotta it's like getting bucked off a horse i say to our team you gotta you gotta get people back on the horse and so there's gonna have to be I think some real stimulus that, you know, that that incents people in, in the case of our business or rest food, food, you know, restaurants and bars like that gives incentives, tax incentives and other other sort of incentives so that that people, you know, will will start to get going
3: again. And that part and so not, it, know, is not the, even really talking about yet. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, is this something that you're that you are actively talking about? When does when do those discussions start we to have- happen? On- oh,
0: well, I, listen. I'm not the last thing I'm gonna do is be critical of, of this administration. They're they're a week into it, and they and they've been crushing it. You know, they've been, they've got a lot. They've got a lot of you know crises, sort of multiple crises going on. So I we have been talking to them about it. We talked to the prior administration. In all fairness to both administrations, Jason, it has been time, right? I mean, we're not through the crisis. Like, there's no reason to stimulate people to get moving. The next sixty or ninety days are going to be tough. And so, yeah. you know, I, I think it, it, everything has a time and place. And I think the, the, the time and place for that, in my opinion, will be as we get into the spring. And we really can see that we go from a million people being vaccinated day in the U.S. to a million and a half or two million. And you have a sight line to having the bulk of the population um, vaccinated, then I think we can all responsibly say it, it makes sense to try and stimulate people to get out. Why would you stimulate people to get out when they're in harm's way? And right now, I think right. reality is they're, they're still in harm's way. So I think appropriately, it's sort of a spring or summer dialogue. But we've had discussion. I, I had lots of discussions with the prior administration on this. Lots of good ideas. We've started those discussions with this administration. But but to their credit, they're focused on the immediacy of the health crisis and they're focused on the immediacy of building the finishing building the bridge to get get folks to the other side.
1: And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time, I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews.
0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.